Hello and welcome. The Portavud Institute for the Study of the Iranian World welcomes you to another episode of our podcast, Legacies of Ancient Persia. Join us as we further explore the many legacies of ancient Persia and its relevance to global patrimony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Legacies of Ancient Persia. This week, our guest is Dr. Sarah Cole, an assistant curator of antiquities at the J. Paul Getty Museum. In this episode, we discuss her early interest in material culture and museums, her experience being part of the curating team for the Getty's Persian Art Exhibit, and explore the multifaceted accessibility and digital accommodation questions that arise when putting together museum exhibits. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give our show a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining me this morning, Sarah. I want to like jump right in and ask you, when did you get into the field of ancient studies? When did you get into classics? Okay, so I think I, like a lot of people who work in the field of ancient studies, have a story from childhood of how I got hooked Um, I grew up in a small town in Southern Virginia, and so I wasn't near any major metropolitan centers or big museums. That wasn't really part of my experience growing up, but we do do have in my hometown a small local museum that's mostly focused on featuring artists from the region, so Appalachia, basically, you know, Virginia, Tennessee, North Carolina, Kentucky, but also gets some small loan exhibitions of other types of of artworks. And when I was, I think, around 12 years old, the museum hosted a small little two room loan exhibition of Egyptian antiquities from the collection of the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts in Richmond. And I remember going to that exhibition with my mom. It was during the summer, so school was out. She was looking for stuff for us to do. And we went to the museum. And I think that was the first time in my life that I had encountered ancient art in person. And there was just something so captivating about it. Like it it sparked something for me. And I kept going back to that exhibition, getting different family members to take me back to see it again. And it wasn't even looking back, it wasn't even anything particularly noteworthy. It was just sort of a a random collection of Egyptian things from the VMFA's collection. But yeah, for me, it, it just sparked an interest that then continued. I mean, this was like early in the days of people getting the internet in their homes. And so I was like going online and, you know, searching for information about ancient Egypt and different kings and queens and went to my little local library, which had a lot of like older outdated volumes on ancient Egypt, but I read what I could and you know, the interest in it continued. And I it, that was also around the same time that the DreamWorks animated movie, The Prince of Egypt came out, which I don't know if you've seen that movie, but it's wonderful. I mean, it's this beautifully animated film that it it's retelling the biblical story of Moses set in New Kingdom, Egypt. And it's just beautifully animated. And so the the pop culture element got me a little bit too just the aesthetically how beautiful that film was and so that that was where my interest began my interest began with a visit to a museum as a kid and so for me i've always had a, a passion for museums and a really strong belief in what museums have the capacity to do for people so i think even very early on the idea of wanting to do something with museums was was ingrained um, even at that kind of small local level. And yeah, that that just continued throughout my life. That's really awesome. I I feel like I hear, you know, a lot of people are like, oh yeah, I went to a museum. And then of course I hear a lot of stories of like people branching off into just like they, that was the springboard into X, Y, or Z. So it's interesting that, yeah, the museum aspect stayed with you. And and if since you mentioned the pop culture, I have to go right there and say, so did that mean that like by the time that the Night at the Museum films came out, you were like, oh, yes, this is the, the coolest stuff ever? So, I mean, yeah, there's just something really, as, as a kid, kind of magical about museums, I think. and And that really struck me. I can't remember how old I actually was before I saw a night at the museum, though, I have to say. I don't know. 
Did you, could you say like you knew for sure, like you wanted to do stuff with museums or was there still a bit of hesitation where you're like, I'm not sure, like this is cool, but might want to do something else? Yeah, I mean, I certainly had other interests too, you know, throughout middle school, high school, and even into college. And once I got to college, I switched a bit between majors before settling on classics. So it wasn't as if I just immediately decided, you know, this is what I'm going to do and I'm going to stick with it. And that, that that was my only path. Uh, there were there were other things that I thought I might do instead, um, other interests that I wanted to pursue. I ended up as an undergraduate, though, settling into a classics major. I was still interested in ancient Egypt, but I didn't go to a university where you could major in Egyptology as an undergraduate, which is a very rare thing anyway. So classics was sort of the most adjacent field. And so that's what I ended up doing my bachelor's degree in and then went into graduate school for ancient history. And I knew starting graduate school that I had an interest in museum work, but I wasn't considering that exclusively. Obviously, when you when you get a PhD in the humanities, you have to kind of keep an open mind about where that might lead and not get too locked into only one idea of what you're going to do or what success looks like. So I tried to keep an open mind, but certainly from early on in grad school, I pursued as many museum related opportunities as I could to gain that experience. And that ended up serving me really well. And I have to say, honestly, from, from pretty early on in my experience earning the PhD, I think I kind of decided that the academy was not for me, that, that I just wasn't interested in entering into that environment and what that currently looks like, and that I was more interested in going into something like museum work where I would have more opportunity to interact with wider audiences of people, to you know, speak with and present art for a wide diversity of audiences, many different ages and backgrounds, and just the, the more public facing aspect of museum work has always been more appealing to me than the the work of an academic which is not to say that the work we do here is not academic because it absolutely is it's just that it's it's more of a mixture of different skill sets and different types of day-to-day -day experiences i think yeah no that totally makes sense to me although can i take a step back with our audience hopefully as well and ask you so when you decided to major in classics after bouncing around a little within that what did you focus on? I mean, from it sounds like with your love of art and stuff that you might have gone for the more material culture side. But, you know, did you also do anything with the more philological side? I definitely did go more with the material culture side because that was always my particular area of interest. Where I did my bachelor's degree at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, in the classics department, you could choose between three different tracks. You could do a Greek concentration, a Latin concentration, or what they call the classical civilization concentration. So I did that third one so that I could focus predominantly on more on history, art, archaeology, and less on the philology, which has never really been my, my wheelhouse, let's say. I mean, I did do some language, but the requirements for that track were less intensive, obviously, than for the, the language concentrations. So I did stay mostly focused in the world of material culture. I was really interested in the Bronze Age as an undergrad. I loved Bronze Age wall painting. And my interests have always also been more in cross-cultural interactions, less on focusing exclusively on one one place or one culture, but on the idea of interconnectedness in antiquity and how different cultures are influencing each other. So I was interested in the idea of Greek and Egyptian interactions throughout time, but, but at that time as an undergrad, I was mostly focusing on the Bronze Age and thought that that's where I would stay. But that, that was mainly where I focused as an undergraduate. And I have to say, you know, I... I appreciate in hindsight that those different tracks, those different concentrations were available because, you know, one of the conversations that we're having across museums and also across academic departments at, at colleges and universities is issues of accessibility, of relevance, of what, what is the future of these fields? How can we attract more majors? And I, I think one of the ways in which to do that is to offer different options to people. 
I went into my undergraduate education not having studied any Greek or Latin at the high school level. And I think had I been faced with a long list of requirements in those areas to do a classics degree, I probably would have felt overwhelmed and maybe I wouldn't have done it. And my path would have been completely different. So I think it is important that these these different options be available so that people don't feel like something is not for them or that they can't be a part of something that they're they're interested in. No, I completely agree because I went to the University of Missouri for my undergrad and we also had sort of three tracks, right? But it was interesting. They just called it classics, Greek, classics, Latin, or just classical studies. And I was like, well, that doesn't really give away much. And it's almost the same thing. But sure, you guys, you do you. Uh, So yes, unsurprisingly, I went through classical studies, not classics, Greek or Latin because languages weren't my my strongest suit either and I really also was more into the the history part as well but sticking with the sort of cross-cultural interest theme which I mean it's impossible not to because so much of the ancient world is interconnected in one way or another but having mentioned that you know you had this interest in Egypt which I did too I loved it my my like gateway entry into the ancient world over the pyramids and stuff I think that's true for so many people. Like Egypt, there's something about Egypt that just grabs you when you're a kid. I call it the gateway drug because it's like you get (laughs) you get the high when you start listening, like learning about pyramids and mummies, and then you're like, "There's nothing so cool as this ancient stuff because it's so old and we don't even know how, and it's wrapped in mystery." And yeah, there's something special about Egypt that draws you in. So yeah, no, that definitely happened to me too. But yeah, like you, you know, there there was nothing about Egypt. We 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 had like one class and it wasn't even truly like Egyptian art in undergrad. But I'm curious, did did you get classes that dealt sort of interculturally with I mean at least Persia, right? Cuz the Greeks and the Persians had more interactions. I I I I want to say that would be likely to come up in these classes and this background. You know, I have to say, I think as an undergraduate, I really didn't didn't have any coursework available to me that dealt with the Persian Empire, which is very interesting in, you know, looking back at what classes I had available. I did work a lot with um, a faculty advisor whose concentration was more in Near Eastern archaeology. And he, through doing some sort of reading courses with him, I was able to work in some things on Egypt that weren't available in the regular curriculum. So that's definitely also something people should take advantage of as as undergraduates, if you can do like concentrated reading courses. But I did, you know, Mesopotamian history with him. But what I remember, because of course, these huge survey courses, you're covering thousands of years of history, and there's only so much you can do. They usually end with Alexander the Great. And so you learn about the Achaemenids, you know, you learn about the Greco-Persian wars. Of course, you're learning it from more from that classics perspective. But then there tends to be, and and this is true sometimes in survey courses of Egyptian history, it's like Alexander the Great shows up and it's like, okay, that's it. We're not, we we don't need to talk about what happens after. Um, And there's really interesting stuff that happens after. But I don't, I don't recall my coursework going into like Parthians and Sasanians It really, I learned about the Achaemenids, but again, in their relationship, their conflict with Greece. It is quite striking because the the more I talk to people, especially who did not originate in the field of Iranian studies, who are classicists like myself, it is really interesting. I'm noticing a really big pattern here of like, if you get the Persians, you only get one dynasty and only in its sort of Greek Mm -hmm. situated context. And you're like, okay, well, that's not really helpful if you want a holistic picture. Um, But it just surprised me because the Parthians at least like had a long history of relations with Rome and they had the sort of like exchange of some of the royals were in Rome for a bit and vice versa. And so it's it's interesting because, I mean, whether we like to admit it or not, if we're Hellenists, right, Rome and the Latinists, they're there. They do a lot. And so because this is like the other big part of the field of classics, it's interesting that you wouldn't bring in the fact that the Parthians and the Romans had a pretty interesting relationship back and forth, which then sort of continued as the Sasanians took over. So, yeah, it's it's really fascinating to see, like, why don't we 
why don't we teach that more? I don't under, I don't really understand that. But okay, so you know, we have biased Greek sources on especially the philological side. And so I, I'm curious to circle back to the museum side and the material culture side. So, you know, on, on that side of things, is there more emphasis on intercultural, again, maybe Persian stuff, because I know material culture is, you know, it, it makes its way around, right? And, and so I feel like, you know, is, is there a lot of stuff left that y- you could study? In, do you mean in museums in general and museum culture? Yeah, like in terms of like getting a, a pretty solid corpus of material culture to be able to be like, oh, yeah, I have this all here. Let's let's look into this. Let's mm-hmm. let's, you know, let's do something with this. I think so. I mean, yeah, there's definitely a huge amount of material culture that survives from from ancient Persia. It's not always easy to interpret or, or understand. But yeah, there's there's definitely a wealth of material that we can look at, which, as you said, you know, we, we do have kind of a lack of written historical sources other than sort of the the high level messaging coming from the kings you know we have the royal inscriptions and sort of the more propagandistic texts but we don't have sort of the equivalent of a thucydides or a herodotus writing in persian which obviously impacts the way that we can approach persian history but we definitely can get at it through material culture through archaeology And that's really what we tried to do at at the Getty with the big Persia exhibition that we did last year was was to kind of bring together important pieces from all over the world to sort of tell this bigger picture story of the whole length of the ancient Persian empire through material culture, a lot of which related to elite and royal spheres, because that's what survives. But that also that tells you a lot about high level interactions among among different cultures. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned the the Persia exhibit that you had a hand in putting together. So I'm curious, just for those who may not have gotten out to the Getty to, to see the exhibit itself, you know, how big was this exhibit? And did it seem like it, you know, had popular turnout? Like what kind of things did you did you have in this exhibit? So I guess I should back up a little bit and kind of talk about my time at the Getty and, and how this exhibition fits into um, a bigger program that I've been been part of. So after doing my undergraduate degree in classics, I went to Yale for graduate school and did a PhD in ancient history, where I shifted my focus to a later time period, but still the theme of Greco-Egyptian interaction. I focused on the Ptolemaic period, working with Joe Manning who was my advisor there. And so I worked with with Joe and still with a material culture focus, interested on how we see, you know, material culture artworks during this period, kind of expressing those cross-cultural interactions and the kind of multivalent identities of people living in this environment. And right after finishing my PhD, the Getty Museum was looking for someone to help with the first exhibition in a new series that they were doing. And the series is being called The Classical World in Context. So the the basic idea behind this is the Getty Villa Museum, our collection is predominantly Greek, Roman, and Etruscan antiquities, or what we traditionally call the classical world. That's what you'll find you know, if you come visit the villa. And that collection was built around the collecting parameters that were begun by J. Paul Getty, who was interested in European art up until about 1900. So that's our collection. It is what it is. But of course, now, as as we've been discussing, the conversation is moving in the academy and in museums much more toward looking at a global antiquity looking at interconnectedness and diversity and really trying to help people understand that none of these cultures exists in a vacuum and none of these cultures are sort of static, unchanging monocultures. They're all constantly in communication with each other, influencing each other. Um, And there's actually great diversity across the ancient Mediterranean and Near East. Our permanent collection simply doesn't equip us to really tell those stories very effectively. So with the classical world in context, the idea is to take the permanent collection as a launching point and say, okay, we have a collection of Greek and Roman. How did the Greeks and the Romans interact with Egypt, with Persia, with Thrace, with Mesopotamia, etc.? 
you could arguably criticize that approach as still centering Greece and Rome. But again, you know, one has to have some sort of theoretical framework around which to build such a series. And the reality is that our collection is Greek and Roman. So we use that as as a starting point. And that's kind of the basic philosophy behind it. So the first exhibition in this series was on Egypt and its relationship with Greece and Rome over a long span of time from the Bronze Age through the Roman Empire. And I was hired as a curatorial assistant to work uh, on that exhibition in 2016. And the exhibition went on view at the Getty Center in 2018. And then I was kept on at the Getty to continue working on this series. I became an assistant curator and have continued to work on classical world and context exhibitions and, and publications. And Persia was the second big exhibition in this series. This was a really significant exhibition for a number of reasons. I mean, we were very fortunate to get to work closely with scholars at the Portavud Center and also at the Persian Studies Center um, at UC Irvine. So there's, there's a really wonderful local community here in Los Angeles of scholars of ancient Iran that we were able to tap into and, and really collaborate closely with. And we brought together artworks from all over the world in a big exhibition, we crammed as much as we could into you know, a relatively small space here at the villa because it's, it's a tall order to try to talk about the Achaemenids, the Parthians and the Sasanians in one exhibition. And there's only so much you can include and only so much you can do. But I think we did a good job. <laughs> I'm, I'm biased, but I'm very proud of what we accomplished. I worked together you know, as part of a team the exhibition was primarily curated by our senior curator of antiquities, Jeffrey Spear, and myself, and we edited the accompanying catalog. And it was a, it was also, I think, a really meaningful exhibition for the local Persian community in Los Angeles. We have a huge Persian community here, and they're very engaged and very enthusiastic about their history. And it, it was great to get to share this exhibition with them. And I can't recall off the top of my head the raw numbers, but in terms of the weekly average, this was the most visited exhibition we have ever had at the villa. So that's, you know, we're very proud of that. It, it drew a huge audience, I, I think both local and, you know, we, we get a lot of tourists in Los Angeles. A lot of people come to the villa as a tourist destination, but I think this exhibition really was a big draw for a lot of people. And so, uh, yeah, we're we're very, very proud of what we accomplished. And I think the publication as well includes a lot of, of really significant scholarship. So, again, it was it was part of this series. So part of the overarching theme of it was not just to talk about Persia, but to talk about Persia's relationship with Greece and then with the Roman Empire. What we tried to do and what I hope we did successfully in the narrative was to really try to sort of flip the script a little bit and get away from that more traditional classics centric way of presenting the conflict. Many of us in our educations, learning, you know, about the Greco-Persian Wars, for, for instance, kind of learned about it as like the conquest of the West over the East and the victory of democracy over, you know, this huge empire. And, you know, we, we learn, we really get this skewed perspective of it, of like this Greek triumph and and see it from the Greek perspective, really. And we, we very much wanted to get away from that and kind of try to look at it more from the Persian perspective. What's the Persian perspective on all of this? What does it look like from that side of things? And so we, we really tried to foreground Persia as much as possible. Of course, the, the works in the exhibition did include examples of how Greeks represented Persians in their art, how Romans represented Persians in their art, and how that maybe aligned with or didn't align with the historical reality of their relationships. And also just things like exchange of, of material culture, exchange of forms, how Persian material culture influences the vessel shapes the Athenians are making, even though at the, at the same time, there's propaganda against Persian luxury. Uh, on the ground, in reality, there's, there's a lot of very complex forms of interaction and economy 
taking place between the two. And, and then the same is true with the, the Romans. There's this very propagandistic way in which the Romans depict Persian people that is not, doesn't entirely align with the historical reality of the relationship between those empires. I mean, that sounds fascinating. And I think it's awesome that that was like such a popular exhibit for people to go to. But because it's situated within this classical context, I'm I'm curious as to the artifacts that you had on display then, how many were like Greek and Roman in origin that just displayed Persians and how much were from Persia itself? That's a good question. Let me think for a second here. I would say predominantly the works in the exhibition came from the Persian Empire, were created in the Persian Empire. And so again, we very much wanted to center the narrative on Persian imperial identity and the the narrative from their perspective. So it was mostly Persian material. We did have some, for instance, Greek pottery, you know, from around the time of the Greco-Persian Wars, showing the way that Athenians were depicting that conflict. We had some artworks from Rome showing, for instance, how they adopted um, the god Mithra and kind of created their own cult around Mithras and how he was depicted. And um, we had some works from places like Dura Europas that, you know, were kind of on the on the border. We, we talked a lot about borderlands in the exhibition and sort of these territories where the, these big powers are kind of coming into contact, you know, Anatolia, Syria, Mesopotamia, often being kind of those borderlands. But predominantly it was Persian material. And we had some Greek and Roman representing their perspective. But but we really did try to foreground the Persian art as much as possible. That's awesome. And I think, like, I want to say that it shouldn't be unexpected. But you never know in this kind of thing because it's, you know. So, no, that's that's really awesome that you guys were able to get a large amount of, like, Persian and origin materials. So for anyone that doesn't know what curating an exhibit is like, would you enlighten us and just tell us, you know, like, so what kind of planning and, and what kind of work goes into, you know, getting all the materials to where you need them and make sure, you know, everything is labeled correctly and, and presented in the way that you wanted to do it? So yeah, curating a, a special exhibition, especially a major international loan exhibition, but any exhibition really is an enormous undertaking that involves a whole team of people. And I think one of the things people are most often most surprised to hear is that any given exhibition is usually many years in the making. I think people come into galleries and see these exhibitions and think that we put them together relatively quickly, but really there's years of research and preparation involved. Then there's the communication with potential collaborators, potential lenders. You, know, you have to reach out to, to your colleagues at the various museums around the world that you want to borrow from and have conversations about the project, about what's possible, about what they might be able to lend or not based on things like availability. Sometimes you want something and it's been promised somewhere else, or sometimes you want something and it has some conservation issues and it can't safely travel. And, and those are conversations that you just have to have with, with colleagues. So you start building sort of a, lit, a wish list based around the research that you've been doing to develop the themes. And then you start working you know, within the museum with a whole team of people who help bring the exhibition together. So there's the curator who has sort of come up with the concept for the exhibition, done the research. And then we work together with teams of conservators, mount makers, designers, interpretive content specialists who include editors who work on the physical text that goes into the galleries, the labels, the gallery text. We write all of that, but then we go through a very rigorous editorial process. And then we also have interpretive content specialists who work more on the digital side, who help create any sort of media components that go into the gallery. We work with educators, we work with public programmers, uh, we work with exhibitions coordinators. Uh, so it, it's a huge team of people and years of work that go into bringing any given exhibition together. Each one is unique in its own ways and some have different challenges or different demands, but it's a very, it's very collaborative work. 
I would say. And that's actually one of the things I really enjoy about it is, you know, you get to work with these teams of really skilled, enthusiastic people to, to bring all of this to fruition. So, you know, we do a combination of, of kind of more, more of the academic side, I guess you could say in, in the research the research and the development of the ideas behind the exhibition. You know, what are we trying to convey? What is the purpose of this exhibition? What messages do we want people to understand? And how can we incorporate the most up-to-date research in these areas? And sometimes that involves reaching out to colleagues or bringing in a collaborator if we need someone who's really specialized in something to, to consult on a project. Sometimes we work as solo curators, you know, one curator on an exhibition. Sometimes it's a team of curators working together. So it varies. But yeah, we do we do a combination of that kind of solitary research and, and idea development and then very heavily collaborative work with teams to, to bring the exhibitions to life. And then, of course, that's exhibition development. Of course, one of the other major components of what we do is just the day-to-day care and research and interpretation of the permanent collection, which is a a huge portion of what what we do. But we we have to balance those demands of permanent collection and special exhibition. And here at the Villa, we have a dedicated special exhibition space where we do typically two big special exhibitions per year. So that's actually a very rigorous program that keeps us all very busy. I mean, kudos, though. I mean, it's because you guys are like busy working on really cool exhibits that I feel like the public are like, you know, raring to go see. But, you know, a couple things as you were talking struck me. Uh, and I guess like the first one is just as someone who's not involved in museum stuff at all, I just go and enjoy them, right? Enjoy all of your, your hard work. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's a perception or a misconception, maybe we should call it, that if you're into museum curation, that a lot of what you would do is like the preservation of stuff. Because I've definitely talked to people who have mentioned thinking that, yeah, oh, well, if, you, if you're if you a curator, then you, you like do the preservation stuff, right? And I'm like, well, I, I don't know, because I'm sure that there are some curators who might have the skills to handle it, but like... Yeah, so from like your experience, is that a part of the job or do you actually have to have like the special skills in preservation stuff to be able to actually be the one doing this the stuff to make sure the the artifacts stay, you know, clean and maintained? Right. Yeah, I mean, I would say all of us here we're engaged in what you would more broadly call cultural heritage preservation and that that's, you know, preserving the collection is and Caring for it is, of course, a huge part of our mission. But I think what you are really getting at is conservation. And that's a whole other specialized field where you have to have you have to have specialized training. And, and conservation is such an interesting area because it's kind of this mixture of artistry and science. You have to have a lot of training in, in science that most of us curators don't have. Here at the Getty Villa, we have our own dedicated team of conservators who work specifically on the antiquities collection. And they do the actual physical care of the objects in terms of, of preservation, of treating anything that, that arises, and of, of making sure that the, the artworks are safe and stable and that work is done by conservators who, yeah, have a different, a, a related but different set of skills and training. Yeah. No, thank you for clearing that up. And and see, again, that, that further illustrates, like, for those of us well outside and who are not familiar, like, yeah, if you were to ask me, is there a difference? What's the difference between preservation and conservation? I would have been like, uh, I'm not actually sure. Like, those are, it's it's really interesting as you get further into it. But yeah, so thank you for clearing that up for me, in addition to hopefully other people who may sort of conflate the two, because I feel like there are many of us who, who do that. And then the other thing that I wanted to ask you about as as you were telling us about the the exhibit was and and you've mentioned it also just in terms of access to the field and studying and resources accessibility is a huge thing it's a huge point you know we're trying to make the literature and the resources accessible you're trying to make material culture more accessible by being able to display it places what are some of the challenges to accessibility that 
are present on the museum curation side like I know I from what I can imagine I'm like okay you have to make the text when you're describing things accessible so that people understand what it is without making it too convoluted or sort of so it doesn't go over people's heads but then I'm sure there's an accessibility standpoint of like you have to have physical access to the thing but then there has to be a flow so yeah like what kind of accessibility issues are there that are in addition to like the traditional ones we think about that's a great question because yeah, across museums, we're we're constantly having this conversation about accessibility and it falls into categories of kind of the more physical and practical, but then also the more philosophical and, and kind of big picture. So the physical, of course, has to do with like the physical accessibility of the building. How easy is it to navigate the building and the galleries and display height of objects? You know, we thinking about should we display it at what we consider to be the average person's height? Or are we thinking about wanting to make things visible to children? We get a lot of school groups at the Getty. We want kids to be able to see things comfortably, but then you also get very tall adults. And so things like that. And then we've also had instances where we've had conversations around things like font sizes for a label. What's the most comfortable font size? What's the best font color? You know, how how legible is, say, a white font on a black background versus a black font on a white background? And like these are things that we talk about and that we have to consider. And of course, we in doing that, we have conversations with our designers, with our interpretive content specialists. But yeah, there's that we're constantly talking about the physical accessibility of things just in terms of ease of kind of in, navigating the building, encountering the information that we're presenting, and of course, encountering the actual artworks. But then there's the bigger picture, like philosophical questions around accessibility and, and museum spaces as places that need to feel welcoming and inviting and available to everyone. And I think for a lot of people, museums can feel like they're not accessible spaces. And I've, you know, I've heard this feedback from people that their experiences have maybe been that museums feel like these very stuffy, elitist places where you, you need to have some sort of art historical background to understand what the labels are talking about. And that it's just not a place where they feel welcome or they feel like they can come and have a good experience. And that's really unfortunate. And that's obviously not what we want to have happening. So we we talk a lot about that, about how do we reach out to communities and, and help them know that like our museum is a welcoming space. We want it to be accessible to anybody. We really do try to write our labels, our interpretive content in a way that doesn't presume or expect any previous understanding of anything so that you can come in and have a meaningful experience, have meaningful encounters with the artworks, hopefully learn a little something, have a good time, and have it be, you know, a positive and welcoming experience. But that's a real challenge that it, it, it is true for a lot of people and a lot of communities that they don't feel like museums are for them. And it's understandable. I think we've all, I mean, even those of us who work in museums have had the experience of like going to a museum where it just feels uncomfortable like it feels stuffy or too formal and and then you go and try to read the label and the label for the painting that you're looking at for example has all this art historical terminology in it or references to other artists or places or things that it just kind of presumes that you already know and and you're like this is not accessible information like you you have to look up all of these things to understand what this label is talking about and that does happen and so we we have a lot of conversations around the, these questions and i you know at, at the getty we've been striving to make the interpretive content a lot more accessible we've switched over in the last couple of years to a bilingual program all of our special exhibitions are now presented in both English and Spanish. And the long-term goal is to have all content at both Getty locations in both languages for both permanent collection and special exhibitions. It's a process and we're, we're you know, we're in the process of, of rolling that out, starting with special exhibitions. But then also we've talked about shortening our labels because to be honest, 
what we know from visitor surveys and from data that's been collected is like most people don't read labels when they come to a museum, which is a little heartbreaking for those of us who spend so many hours <laughs> writing these labels and editing them and agonizing over word choices and and all these things. And then to be honest, we know that most people come in and kind of glance at the labels and maybe they'll read one or two panels. So we do try to think about how to make it a meaningful experience for people who maybe they're not reading the labels or maybe they're stopping and reading something here or there. Um, but also just being practical and realizing that ge generally speaking, most people find shorter labels more inviting, more accessible. If people walk up to a wall text and it's way too long, their instinct is just going to be to turn away and not not look at it. So we we have to curb our own you know desires to to write really lengthy texts about everything because you know we're enthusiastic about this material and we want to share as much information as possible. But we have to be we have to be conscious of what the visitor experience is and. We've tried to also think about accessibility in terms of our public programming. How do we make programs more inviting and more accessible to a wider array of audiences? What kinds of talks should we be hosting? What kinds of speakers should we be bringing in? What kinds of performances should we be doing? And, and in terms of education as well, accessibility, for, we have a big school program at the Getty where we bring in lots of K through 12 students and so, yeah, in that bigger picture philosophical sense, accessibility is something that we are talking about across departments at the museum, and it, it impacts every different aspect of how we operate. It's so interesting because that those issues that you mentioned are so multifaceted because I'm sitting here thinking about my own experiences with museums. And what's interesting is, you know, I think it's a great step forward that the Getty wants to have everything be bilingual. Although I, you know, and, and of course there, there is no right answer really. I don't, I, I don't believe there is or else we might've already figured out how to implement this. But for a lot of like special collections and other things, especially if it's, you know, highlighting a certain community or, you know, culture, and we do have the languages still around, we have people who know them. I mean, so, so like take the, the Persia exhibit, right? So we have a pretty vibrant community here in LA you know, was there any discussion as to, oh, well, maybe because it's a special exhibit, it's not going to be here forever, we can translate it into three languages and have it, you know, in, in Persian, like, or is that just completely out? Because like, that's a whole other level of having to add in stuff that it's like, oh, we don't have the time for this, or we have to focus on something else that takes precedence. I wouldn't say it's out of the question. I mean, for Persia actually happened before we had started implementing bilingual at the villa. So it was all in English. And you know, if we had done that exhibition bilingually, I think we would have really had to rethink it because we had a lot of interpretive text in that show because it, it was such a dense historical narrative to try to explain to people, um, again, covering that enormous span of time and all these many different cultural shifts and shifting boundaries and political alliances and dynasties and just trying to get that information across it, it, in one language was a real challenge. And then of course, the more languages you add in, the more you have these space considerations, but it's not out of the question to someday do exhibitions in languages other than, than English and Spanish. And it's, it's a con I'd say it's a conversation that has started, but at the moment we're, we're kind of focusing on the first step in, in the process in, in this series of goals, which is to implement Spanish across both sites and and that's been, you know, many many years of work, just getting the ball rolling on on that. And I think I don't want to speak for the institution, but I you know I think we we don't want to try to take on way too much immediately. It's you know we see what can be done. I think and and are considering different possibilities. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and again, like obviously, getting anything done at, at any museum, right? It probably is. It, it's it's not instantaneous. It's not fast and easy. So 
It's never as easy as it seems. Right. So I was like, believe me, I get it. It's it's hard. And I'm sure like I'm sure that a lot of people both at the Getty and around the world at museums are having these types of conversations. Oh, well, maybe we should expand what other languages and then, you know, how do we choose what languages people might appreciate? I just remember because as you were talking, I, I was in Europe for all of last year doing my master's. And I ended up going to Germany and I was like, okay, great. This is perfect. You know, I've, I've never really been to the Pergamon. I want to go to these amazing museums. And then I remember being really, really frustrated because all the labels were in German and there was no English available anywhere. So I had to have a, a friend of mine who spoke German kind of go and explain, okay, this is what this is. And so that got me thinking, you know, how many places depending on you know where in the world you are cater to your local population what's the local language and then you know do you have English because that's kind of the universal that we sort of just most people know because you have to right but then it's like how much of the local community for depending on what your subject is do you want to like oh it's their history maybe we should have it in their language like I'm sure these are all like huge discussions that are being had so it's just interesting to hear your perspective on you know kind of how this has to start going how you start to get the ball rolling you know how in st- it does have to come out in, in stages so yeah it's it's absolutely fascinating to hear though and it is really sad about the the text though because i i remember some of the museums i went to i i would say i would say as a museum goer i'm more likely if i see kind of the wall text because you know it's able to be blown up you can make the font bigger if you wish and you can try to sort of summarize I don't know how practical it would be because I, again, don't work in a museum, but I'm like, I don't know. I feel like, you know, you could try to summarize if you, I wonder if more people would be receptive to like more wall text because even, you know, you can just, it's bigger, you can put it there, but then you'd have to like summarize more about like maybe instead of taking time on like individual artifacts, right? You you just sort of summarize, okay, everything in this room is connected to this. And this is, you know, a selection of things you would see. So then you're like, okay, so for the people who are going to skip it and just glance at the stuff, if you have an explanation of like what is in the room like everything in this room would be used for a symposia which means you would have this this and this you know and you're like oh okay great so that's everything i'm looking at in this room so i don't know if like that's the way but i am interested because i obviously with the podcast and everything i'm i take a big interest in like multimedia approaches and and alternate ways other than text and reading to sort of convey information so i'm i'm curious from your perspective like on museums adding in a more interactive element and I know a lot of museums they try to do that with you know where children are involved like oh maybe we should have something that kids can touch or you know something but in terms of not only for the kids but for adults like would it be hard to integrate you know more media so instead of having people read texts do you do more kind of like the museum style movies where you go in and see the the thing do you have like a like a button you can press that speaks the blurb out to you like has the getty or have you been able to sort of experiment with different media approaches and have you found something that you feel works better or worse yeah i mean we've experimented with a lot of of different things at the getty and i think if you go to various museums, both in the US and abroad, you'll see a wide array of different approaches. And some institutions have really leaned very heavily into digital presentations and lots of interactive multimedia. Some institutions have remained much more traditional with virtually no digital components. But yeah, we we at the Getty have, have looked at a lot of different modalities and have sort of a range of different options that we explore. It it depends on each individual exhibition. I think what we really try to keep as a central focus is what does the exhibition itself call for? You know, what does this material actually call for? I, you know, my own perspective is that we shouldn't do digital just for the sake of doing something digital, you know, like just for the sake of having something kind of flashy and impressive. But, but that it really should be that the content of the exhibition would be best served by being presented in a particular way. So for instance, we do a lot of audio guides where you can, you know, when you come to the museum or even before you come to the museum, you can download the Getty Guide app and access our audio tours. So you can listen to them on your phone as you go through the galleries and 
We'll, we'll often do audio tours for special exhibitions. So if, you know, if your preference is to experience an exhibition that way, where you can kind of walk through and hear someone speaking about the contents of, of the exhibition and particular highlight pieces on display, you can do that. For instance, last year I curated an exhibition of jewelry from ancient Nubia and one of the the kind of central themes that comes out of this material is materials and technologies you know all of the all of the different materials being used the different metals the different stones the man-made materials being used to create these pieces of jewelry and also what techniques and tools did they use to make these pieces but i didn't have physical space in the gallery labels to really delve into that subject matter. So I decided to use the audio guide as the opportunity to focus on that. And we really focused the audio tour on the theme of materials and manufacturing techniques and interviewed conservators and people who had studied these pieces and kind of understood their materiality and how the materials had been worked, how particular objects were assembled, et cetera. So I think you can use these different modalities as ways to highlight different themes or give people opportunities for different experiences. We've also done in-gallery video, you know, for some exhibitions. Um, we have an exhibition up right now featuring a piece that underwent conservation here at the Getty. It's a little bronze horse and rider figurine that was actually discovered by a farmer uh, plowing his field in Albania. And they reached out to us and asked our conservators if they would work on conserving the object. And so it underwent treatment here and then went on display. And the curator of that exhibition felt that the best way to tell that story was through an in-gallery video where you could actually show stages of the conservation process happening, interview the conservator, interview the archeologists who you know, came in once they had been alerted to this discovery, et cetera. So we can do in-gallery video sometimes. Digital labels are sometimes really helpful. We have some in our permanent galleries and we also implement them into special exhibitions where, for instance, if you're displaying uh, coins or very intricately carved tiny gemstones where it's actually really hard with the naked eye to appreciate what you're looking at, we can put really high resolution photography on an iPad label next to the case where you as the visitor can then go in and zoom in in huge detail on photos of the pieces and get a much closer look at, at the objects. We've also done entirely separate sort of digital online components. We did that for Persia. We actually partnered with an outside team to create a website that is a virtual reconstruction of Persepolis, where you can actually walk through, you get kind of a guided walkthrough of Persepolis, stopping and talking about particular features of the site and types of objects that were found or used there. So that's a totally web-based experience related to an exhibition. Um, we also for Persia did an in-gallery video that was a kind of abbreviated walkthrough of Persepolis with a narration. So you walked into a space with a 360 LED screen and watched this, this animation kind of walk you through the site with a voiceover explaining what you were seeing. And I think that was a really impactful experience for a lot of people that helped them visualize something that is really hard to bring into the physical gallery space, which is an appreciation of architecture and of the grandeur of some of these ancient sites where we can put objects on display and say, this was found at Persepolis, which was this major Persian capital located in Iran. But there's something very different about having that physical experience of kind of feeling like you're immersed in Persepolis and really getting to see like, oh, this is what this place looked like. Um, and so we can use media components in gallery to help bring in things that we otherwise really can't help people experience and that can enhance then their appreciation of the artworks that they're seeing on display. I think that's always the tricky balance that we're working with when we're talking about all of these digital elements is that you want it to enhance and not overshadow 
the actual artworks that they're looking at. This is, you know, as curators, we keep coming back to this of like, what we really want is to encourage people to engage in close looking at the objects. We don't want to distract them with something else that they then focus all of their attention on. But if you can present them with different tools to get broader context or to have a deeper appreciation of what they're looking at, that can be really useful. Right now, I'm curating an exhibition on the ancient Egyptian Book of the Dead that opens soon. And we're including some fragments of strips of linen wrappings that were used to wrap the mummified bodies of individuals. And I wanted to help people really understand the original context in which these were being used and this very intimate connection that they had to, to their owners, to people's physical bodies, which is really hard, I think, to convey when you're showing the linen strip framed and hung on the wall of a gallery, where you're getting this kind of abstract experience of seeing it framed and hung like you would a, a painting or a work of art. And you can say in the accompanying label, this was used on a person's mummified body. But but even so, there's still, I think, a little bit of cognitive dissonance that can happen there where you're not fully getting it. But what I'm trying to do with the uh, digital interactive that we're creating to accompany it is to kind of what we did was we worked with outside animators to kind of recreate to animate a little story about how these mummy wrappings would have been created and then how they were used to wrap the body. And then how in the 19th century, these mummified bodies were taken out of their tombs and, and unwrapped and these materials were physically taken off of people's bodies. And I think that the, the visualization element of that, I'm hoping will really help people to have a, a deeper sense of connection to that story and a deeper appreciation of what this material signified for the people who owned it and who were buried with it. So yeah, I think I think digital content is something that we often use and that I think has a lot of different different uses for enhancing people's experiences in the galleries. But again, we, we always try to strive for that balance. It's not not overdoing it on the digital, but doing enough that it it complements, it enhances. Again, just a different way of thinking, because I think coming from the not museum side, you know, I think I, I, I tend to fall into, and I'm sure a lot of other scholars do too, but I tend to fall into the, no, we should make it interesting and like exciting. So it just gets people in sort of no matter the cost. And then we can just, you know, figure all the other stuff later, correcting them and, and whatever. But yeah, no, it's it's a different type of consideration, especially when you're working with the material and you have to really think about how are we presenting this? Because yeah, it'd be one thing to sort of have something cool in a museum once and then have someone go like, oh, this was great. And then sort of leave and never come back again. So yeah, no, it's a, it's a different way of thinking. So I I really have appreciated this this really great insight into sort of what what kind of things you have to think about and the things you sort of get to make decisions on or help figure out what to do. So I, I mean there's there's like 10,000 more questions that I really want to ask, but I think that neither you nor I would have the appropriate time to get into it so I might have to save that for a for a second episode somewhere down the line but there are two questions that I've been ending this podcast with that I hope will leave okay you with some you know interesting thoughts and ideas and hopefully that our audience will as well and since you are not really in Iranian studies proper, I always say take this and sort of adapt it to however mindset you would like to, to sort of find the best answer for you. But the the first of these questions is, mm -hmm. what in your opinion is the greatest legacy left to us from ancient Persia? Ooh, that's a tough question. <laughs> oh gosh, I don't know if I could pick one. I mean, I guess, yeah, that, that answer is going to be different for everybody. I think as having my own encounter with Persia, having primarily been through curating this exhibition, I mean, I have to say that the material culture legacy that they have left behind is tremendous and exquisite works of art and monu from monumental architecture to beautiful little gemstones and coins. And th there is just such incredible, incredible material culture, incredible artworks that survive from ancient Persia. And of course, as a material culture person, that's my 
my area of interest, but I think, yeah, there, there is a remarkable artistic legacy that, that comes down from ancient Persia. I mean, I would say I expect nothing less as a material culture person. And with your experience, having been looking at a bunch of cool ancient Persian art, I expected nothing less. But also, I mean, it's true. I mean, how many like ancient Persian motifs survive till today that people are like, oh, that's still like a really cool design and that people want to sort of, you know, emulate. So no, that's that's awesome. So the second question that I have for you is what do you think would be the best legacy that we ourselves can leave for future students of Iranian studies? Ooh, that's also a tricky question. <laughs> really deep, challenging questions. What's the best legacy that we can leave? I mean, I think keep, keeping in line with kind of what we've been talking about of this bigger focus on global antiquity, I think you know, I'm I'm encouraged to see that we're moving more in that direction. And, and I think I hope that that will be a legacy that carries on into future generations who study not just ancient Iran, but the ancient world in general is this more global perspective, a perspective that takes more diversity and intercultural connections into consideration. And what I would love to see is some breaking down of barriers between academic disciplines in this regard, you know, within within the academy, you know, and, and in the way that people are educated about the ancient world. I I would love to see some some breaking down of the silos around fields like classics, Egyptology, Assyriology. I'm not sure how much of a silo Persian studies is in because I, I don't personally have a lot of experience being in the field of, of Persian studies, but uh, you know, a lot of these disciplines that study the ancient world are, are kind of kind of siloed from each other. And there's so much potential for bringing these disciplines together to do interdisciplinary work on antiquity. And I think things like the creation of the Center for Global Antiquity at UCLA are very much moving in that direction. And I think that's fantastic. And so I hope that that will create something that will be a legacy too for future generations of students is just this more interdisciplinary, more flexible, more collaborative approach to studying the ancient world where we're not so, you know, divided into our little narrow disciplinary areas and specializations, but where we're really working together and having a more diverse, diversified perspective, and a more collaborative approach as scholars. I, I hope that's a legacy that we can leave. I mean, it seems like we're trending in the right direction. So I'm going to say I wholeheartedly agree. And I and I do hope we keep trending that way. Because I think it's going to be exciting if we can break people out of their near little lanes. And then, you know, it'll help us build a more comprehensive picture of the ancient world and the actual ancient connections that all these ancient peoples and places had. And I think that that's, too, where we're going to find some of the relevance that we're all talking about and looking for. You know, we're talking about that in museums. We're talking about that in the academy, too. It's like, how do we make all of this very old stuff seem relevant to people today? And, I, you know, that's where it's going to come in, I think, is in finding these connections, these themes that recur throughout human history and that we can identify with. It's like that, you know we we need to find ways to make make things relevant and accessible and that's going to be through a more integrated collaborative approach for sure so there is one more question i'm going to ask you and this is where you get to kind of self-promote where can people find your your work your research or just some of the projects that you've you've worked on well they can come to the getty villa and see see the exhibitions uh, i do have a book of the dead exhibition opening on november 1st that i'm very excited about at the villa i hope people will come out and and see it that one will be on view through the end of january of 2024 so we're always working on exhibitions i don't have a lot of social media presence to promote i don't have professional social media pages but uh you know you can email me scole at getty.edu or you can go online to getty.edu to find exhibition pages for the exhibitions that I've worked on and the publications that I've edited or co-edited. So those would be the main ways to find me. I'm always happy to offer exhibition tours to people who are interested or chat about you know the material and the collections. So people should definitely feel free to, to reach out. 
Amazing. Well, we will make sure we will. I'll try to link as many of the things that you've you've mentioned, if I can find them somewhere online. But yeah, I mean, it's been such a pleasure. So thank you. Thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast today and telling us all about the cool stuff that you've been working on and, you know, to help learn a little bit more about you and the things you're interested in. So we, we do really appreciate it. And, you know, maybe we'll have you on for a part two so we can ask more amazing questions about the, the kind of stuff that you can that you get into. Yeah, I would love to. I'm always happy to talk about museums and, and museum curation. So thank you for inviting me to be part of this. Legacies of Ancient Persia is a Porta Vood podcast production hosted and edited by Lexi Henning with select episodes co-hosted by Marissa Stevens. Cover art provided by Hadley Leesman and original music by Brent Arhart. Established in 2017 as the premier research center for the study of ancient Iran, the mission of the Purdavud Institute for the Study of the Iranian World is to engage in transformative research on all aspects of Iranian antiquity, including its reception in the medieval and modern periods, by expanding on the traditional domains of old Iranian studies and promoting cross-cultural and interdisciplinary scholarship. Thanks for listening to our show. It's available to stream on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Portavood Institute and at Portavood UCLA. Or visit our website, portavood.ucla.edu. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review us. For podcast inquiries or questions about the Portavood Institute, please email us at portavoodpodcastproduction at gmail.com. We'll see you next time as we continue our deep dive into the legacies of ancient Persia.